we are right now. Would you inspire us to follow you? God, would we walk out of here with a better sense of where we are and who we are and who it is that you want us to be? Would we lean on your promises this morning? Would we lean not on our own understanding, but on your wisdom, Lord? And would we this morning put our confidence and our faith in you? God, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, you guys can be seated. Well, um, we are starting a new series today called The Talk. And typically I preach um, my sermons in Troy first and then in, Wins- and then in Wright City on Wednesdays. But I switched it up uh, because of Memorial Day weekend. Also, too, I told my staff it's probably a good idea to do this sermon, these sermons uh, with a smaller crowd and not online the first time. Um, and so we did it Wednesday, and it, it went great. Nobody was triggered. Uh, so we're hoping that the same happens today because we are starting a new series called The Talk. And we all have you know, a story about the talk. You've had the talk, hopefully, by now. I remember when my dad had the talk with me. Uh, I was in eighth grade, and it was time to have the talk. And probably eighth grade was actually way too late to have this conversation. But we, uh, he decided uh, a road trip would be appropriate. So we took a road trip uh, back to his, his hometown in, in Dallas, Texas. We went and saw Kobe and Shaq on the Lakers face our Dallas Mavericks uh, with uh, Dirk Nowitzki. And on the way, we, we had the conversation and it was awkward and we both kept our eyes on the road. We didn't look at each other a whole lot, Uh, but you all had the talk too. And I don't know what your talk looked like. I think everybody is a little bit different. I remember when I got back from having the talk, talking to my friends about the talk that they had. And some of you, your parents, they didn't tell you much, right? Uh, some of you, your, your parents, they told you too much is what they did. Uh, uh, some of you, your parents were just like, Hey man, like just like, don't get pregnant or get anybody pregnant. I mean, and others of you, your parents are probably more like mine. They're like, look, if you have sex before marriage, you're going to hell, and there's a 50% chance you're going to be blind. So, you know, I don't know. It's just, it went different for every single one of us. But, but there's the talk, and then there's, there's your story, right? And, and your story is your sexual experiences and the consequences of those experiences, so you take the talk and you get, you get the education side of it. And then there's experiences that you have. And there's consequences for those experiences. I remember my first kiss. Haley McElwain is in kindergarten. Haley and I were very drawn to each other because we were both beautiful blonde children. And so uh, we were in line going to lunch. And Haley McElwain gave me a smooch on the lips. And I looked at her and I said, can I have another one of those, please? And... I've never quite been the same since. And I remember I got sent uh, to, to uh, have a conversation with a teacher, and they called my mother. And uh, I don't know. It's just that's just that was my that's my story. But you all have a story, right? We all have story of our experiences and the consequences for those. And our story is not something that we typically share very often. It's very personal. It's very private. 
For some of us, it's, it's good. For others of us, it's bad. But we've all got our story. So, so there's the talk, and then there's your story. And then what we're left to do is to just deal with the consequences. I mean, that kind of seems like life. And you might be wondering to yourself, right? Especially if you didn't know what we were going to talk about. Some of you are here because of this series, which I, I, I think that we need to have a conversation about that. But for others of you, you, you just did not know we were going to be talking about this. And you might be asking yourself this. Why are we talking about this at church? Okay. Why are we talking about this at church? Is this a church appropriate conversation? And here's the reason we're talking about this at church. The simple answer is, is because the church should be talking about it. Because the church doesn't talk about it. Because, I mean, to me, I mean, if we, if we open scripture, if we look at the Bible, I mean, sex is talked about throughout the Bible. I mean, Jesus talked about sex. The Apostle Paul talked about sex. I mean, we, we go through and we find these themes all over the place. The Old Testament talks about it. I mean, David talks about it. Solomon talks about it. I mean, it, it's part of it. I mean, geez, I, I think part of the thing, if we're going to be, you know, leaning on the word of God, and if it's in there, we should talk about it. Because I've always kind of rolled my eyes a little bit because, you know, in my, in my field or whatever, uh, I'll talk to other pastors and stuff. And, you know, sometimes pastors like me, they get knocked a little bit for doing sermon series or topical series, as they call them, you know. So sometimes I'll be in a room with people who are far smarter than I, and they'll talk about how biblical their church is, you know, and they'll, they'll say things like, oh, we don't, we don't do sermon series at our church. We don't do topical things. We, we go through the Bible verse by verse. That's how I teach it. That's how I think of these people in my head. And I go, really? You, so you teach your, you, you teach your church verse by verse, verse by verse, book by book. That's how you're a biblical church. Well, tell me, what, what did you do when you got to this one? Your breasts are like two fawns, like two twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies, right? Because that's in the Bible. That's in there, okay? So if you're going verse by verse, tell me what you did when you got to Fifty Shades of Solomon. Because I would love to know how somebody on stage is exegeting this verse. Well, you see, when he says two fawns, there's two boobies. And anyway, I mean, like, what are you, what are you doing with that, all right? So don't knock me for doing topical series when I know you ain't doing that. And by the way, when I die on my tombstone, just put this reference. I don't want the whole scripture. I want people to have to Google this stuff. Oh, that must be his life verse. Let me go look that. That pervert. That's what I want people to say. But come on, it's, it's in there. It's all over the place. And here's the thing. When we think about sex or when we talk about sex, we think, well, that's a worldly thing. But that's not true. Here's the, the truth. Sex is not a worldly creation. It's God's creation. The world didn't invent sex. God did. And here's the thing. When God created sex, he said it was good. I mean, he didn't give Adam and Eve a penis and vagina after the fall. That was something he planned before. And he had a context to it. He had an intent. He had a plan. Sex is part of God's design. It's not a dirty thing. It's not a dirty word. It's only dirty because of what we've done with it. But it's God's creation. And it's something we should talk about. 
And again, one of the reasons we're talking about this stuff is because Gen Z and Gen Alpha, they're searching for questions. They're searching for the truth. They have questions about this. And when they turn to TikTok and Instagram and influencers, the advice they're getting isn't the best. So why would we not turn to Jesus? And why would we not turn to the people who followed Jesus, who gave us wisdom to this and use it to make our lives better and to make us better at life? Because if you look at the world, there's a problem. I'll give you some facts. Did you know in February, Pornhub had 78 million visits per day? And that's in America. 78 million visits per day. OnlyFans right now, which is blowing up. 1.2 billion visits per month on average right now in 2023. That's a lot of people looking it's sexually explicit content. Or let's talk about this. Did you know that 34% of Americans believe in open relationships? Some of you may not know what an open relationship is. Open relationship is when you're married, but you have an agreement that you're not going to be monogamous and you're going to have an open relationship with other people that you're allowed to have sex with other people. And one in five marriages right now in America are in an open relationship. Nobody look around the room. One in five. (laughs) They're all at the Baptist church. We know that. Okay, anyway. Or how about this? The average number of sexual partners in America is 10.7. 10.7. The average adult right now, by the time they're married or an adult, they've had almost 11 partners. No, those are some... Mind-blowing statistics. And that's just scratching the surface. That's just a little bit of Google research. There's a whole lot else out there. So, yeah. I mean, the world is having an open conversation about sex. Having an open conversation about sex, about gender, about sexuality. So, why would we not be a part of that conversation? And again, I'm not saying draw a line in the sand and, and, and go to our, our, our battle cry and, and fight anyone. I'm saying we need to have a conversation about it. I'm saying that maybe possibly what the world is experimenting with and talking about isn't working. And some people have figured that out. And some people are looking for answers. Why would we not give that answer? So before we go anywhere else, we have to talk about how we even got here. Because how we got here is different than any other time in any other context. How did we get here? That's a very important question because there's been a lot that has happened over the last hundred years. So it all began with a guy by the name of Freud. Many of you probably learned about Freud in college, right? Learned about Freud in school. Sigmund Freud believed that we were being sexually repressed. And he believed that this actually was leading to sickness, that we needed to open ourselves and no longer be repressed, but be able to sexually express ourselves. And so he encouraged us to do that. He believed that this would lead to true fulfillment and true happiness, that we should be able to express ourselves sexually. Now, the thing about Freud that's very interesting, if you dive into his work, is Freud didn't believe that you should just open the lid off this thing and go haywire. What's interesting is Freud did believe that the context of marriage was very important to this in terms of what was good for the society. Because he said, man, if you just open the lid off 
on this, and there's no guardrails, this could be very dangerous. This could be chaotic for society. But he did believe that we were being sexually repressed. Then, when we get to the, four, the, the 30s, uh, we come by a, a German philosopher by the name of Wilhelm Reich. And Reich, he took it a step further. He picked up where Freud left off, and he said, I don't just believe we're being repressed, I think we're being oppressed. And he said that any kind of moral law or guardrails were just somebody oppressing us, and that we should be free of guardrails, that we should just let the lid off, that we should be able to express ourselves free. And he called for sexual liberation. One of the things in his writings, he said this. He said, religiosity that is hostile to sex is the product of an authoritarian society. So he said, none of this is good. We should be free of this. We should just let the guardrails go, and we should just let people do what they did. He talked about being their true self. Let them, let people be their true self and express themselves freely. Then we get some practical stuff. Then when we get to the 60s, we get this. Birth control, right? Which this is not a political conversation about birth control. My wife and I, we use birth control, okay? It's not about that. But birth control did have an effect on society. I mean, when we talk about birth control, before there was birth control, you know, there, there, were, there, was, there was fallout. There was consequences. But this drastically reduced the social and economic consequences of expressing yourself sexually. Now, what we didn't talk about is what this would do psychologically or socially. But all of a sudden, the conversation switched to a, a, about safe sex. But, well, now we need to talk about birth control. We need to talk about protection. We need to talk about condoms. We need to talk about the pill. And look, if you're going to do it, just do it safely. And so the conversation changed, and the consequences were drastically reduced. Then, a few years later, what happens? 1983, Al Gore invents the Internet. The Internet is here. And the Internet changes the game again. Because kids, especially all, all the new sixth graders in here, okay, back in the day, if you wanted to look at nudity, you had to put on a trench coat and a hat and sunglasses and go to a creepy store where the floor was sticky. And you had to like go like a weirdo and like get a VHS tape. I know you don't even know what VH, VHS tapes are, right? It was this little thing with windy film and sometimes had blurry lines and stuff, right? But you used to have to go to, you know, like a, you know, and, and hide yourself. It was, a, there was an embarrassing to go to a store like that. Or I remember even when I was in middle school, we lived in O'Fallon. There was a family video right across the street from our subdivision. And if any of you remember family video, it was like the R-rated blockbuster, right? Because they had this like section in the middle with a big black curtain. And I remember when we moved here from Bridgeton, I had never been to a family video before. And I'm looking at all the, the DVDs and the VHS tapes and stuff. And I'm like, oh, what's back here? And my mom's like, no, 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 don't go back there. And I was like, why are there three X's above this window? You know, like, what's that mean? Is this, oh, is this like the Vin Diesel movie, Triple X? Is that what's in there? No. Not that kind of act, son. You got to go home, okay? But that's what it, you used to have to do. And there was, there was shame. There was shame to it because, you know, it was embarrassing. But the internet changed all that. Because now you could look at sexually explicit content from home. You didn't have to go to a store. You didn't have to go pick up a, a magazine or anything like that. You could do it from the safety of your home. And then, June 1st, 2007, here come the smartphones. And the smartphones drastically changed the game once again. Because now, 
you didn't have to go home. You didn't have to be alone. Well, now you have a computer in your pocket. Now you could look at sexually explicit content from anywhere, from work, in your car. I mean, and then all the apps, right? Tinder, Grindr, I mean, you name it. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of different things you could look at that has sexually explicit content. Not just content, but, but ways to commune with other people in, in sexual, sexual ways. And so, I mean, can you believe this? We're living in a day where, I mean, Playboy is pretty much done. I mean, my kids aren't even going to know what Hugh Hefner or a Playboy is because that, that, that generation is gone. I mean, the smartphone took these kinds of, this kind of content and, and put it out of business because things like OnlyFans and Pornhub are blowing up. And again, we're, we're in a whole new realm. And so what's happened is, is over a hundred years, think about this. We've had a hundred years from Freud till now. We've had over a hundred years of sexual liberation, of the ability to express yourself sexually however you want, to the point where we've even allowed people to, if you want to change your gender, go ahead, change your gender. I mean, we've, we've gone all the way to the full, to the full depths we could go. And what's happened is, is what has, what was permissible and what was accessible has become the new normal. That's where we are. So now it's, it's, it's normal. It's typical. It's just something that, that, that people do or everybody does. And if we go back to Freud, this was the promise that Freud and Reich and so many other philosophers made. The promise was is that more authentic expressions of sexual desire would lead to greater levels of happiness. This was Freud's hypothesis, is that we were being repressed. Reich, he said that we were being oppressed. And if we would allow people to truly be themselves and express themselves freely, however they want, we would find true happiness. But what's interesting is that over a hundred years of sexual freedom and sexual liberation... All the way to the point where we're, we have a pride month and we're allowing people to reassign their genders. And all oh, we've gone as far as we could possibly go. I don't know how much further we could go. That now, though, we also have data that we are the least happiest of any other generation in the past hundred years. We're the least happiest we've ever been as a society, especially as a country. And what's interesting is that we can begin to track this. And do you know about where this, this downward turn begins? Right between, somewhere between 1960 and 1970. And psychologists, psychologists who measure and, and, and keep track of the amount of anxiety and suicides and, 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 and different diseases that we face. Did you know that the amount of people who say that they are suicidal or depressed or anxious is at an all-time high? And do you know that we've seen a drastic spike in just the last, oh, I don't know, 60, 70 years? And where did it begin? Somewhere between 1960 and 1970. And the amount of suicides and the amount of depression and the amounts of divorce has slowly in, just increased, 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 increased to where they say today, today this generation and possibly the next generation is one of the most saddest, most depressed, most suicidal most detached generation that we could ever possibly have to the point now where they're saying that there's actually an anatomy shift that's happening in the brain that we haven't seen in over a hundred years. 
Now, and remember, this was oh, the promise was that if we would be able to express ourselves more freely, we would be happier. And not just happier, but that it would be better for society, especially women. They said, look, if we could just freely express ourselves more, free, more freely, it, it would be better for women. But let's look at this. One out of four women will experience sexual violence at some point in their life now. One out of four women. And children, 25% of children now experience a portion of their lives without a father in the home. That's where we are. And then there's a book that was written. It's called Adam and Eve After the Pill. And she says this. She says, contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and especially women. And its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in society, even as it has given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory. That's where we are. So let me ask you something. Is it working? Because I don't think it is. We've had a hundred years to experiment with this. We've had a hundred years of, of doing what Reich and Freud said we should do. And we've, we've, we've let the, the door fling open and we've let people express themselves and we've encouraged it. And we've just said, well, just make it safe. Just make it safe. But it's fine. It's your body, your choice. You do what you need to do. And, and, and some of that has been good. But the, but the conclusion of it is that it hasn't been good for us. So what do we do? Well... I think if we look to God, we understand that, yes, sexual expression is good, but there's, there's always a context for anything that God created. There's a context. There's a place. There's guardrails. It's not about just being ourselves and, and, and going by our appetites or what we feel is right. There has to be a context and there has to be guardrails. There has to be a box that this fits in. And so to find some answers about what that box is, what those guardrails should be, uh, we're going to look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote it to Corinth. He wrote actually two letters to Corinth because they had wrote him questions about clarification on some things. And so he writes to Corinth. And again, you might say, well, you know, context, context, context is everything. You're exactly right. But remember that Corinth was a Greco-Roman society full of Gentiles, not Jews. And they were brand new to following Jesus. And as part, as part of a Greco-Roman society who had been a part of many different religions and worshipped many different gods beforehand, I mean, sex was a part of their culture. And there were no moral codes at this time. Zero moral codes at all. And so this is a society who's expressed themselves sexually, freely, I mean, in any way you could possibly depict or imagine. And so when Paul writes in this letter, it's a society that's much like our own now. And so he writes in this letter in Corinthians, and this is in your New Testament, and this is what he says to him. He says, I know you say, I have the right to do anything. Now, this is what they were debating about, what was going on. These were Gentiles, right? Brand new followers of Jesus. And they had agreed in Acts that they were not going to uh, push the old covenant in the Jewish traditions on new believers and Gentiles. Because Jesus gave them a new law, right? Jesus said, there's a new law, a new covenant that I've made with you. And the law, the greatest command is love God and love others as you love yourself. So love God, love others, and love yourself. This is the greatest command. 
And so they didn't push the 613 laws on them. They didn't push the Old Covenant or the Old Testament on them. So they received this information. Hey, here's the thing when it comes to following Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. He rose again three days later. Through Jesus, you find new life. You need to, to repent. And here's, here's the greatest command. Love God, love others, and love yourself. Okay, great. So that means we can kind of do anything, right? Like there's not like a list of rules we're supposed to follow or anything like. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of free to express myself freely. I mean, especially if there's consent involved. I mean, if she's good with it and I'm good with it, I kind of feel like I'm loving her the way she wants to be loved, right? And I'm loving myself, which means we love God. So we can do whatever we want. So they were still expressing themselves freely. So sexual expression was going on. And so they write him this letter for clarification. He goes, I know what you've said. I know you say, well, we have the right to do anything. We're not breaking the law of God. And then he says this, but not everything is beneficial. And this is such an important question. Something that we should stop and ask ourselves on a regular basis. Is it beneficial? I mean, think about it. Sexual liberation, sexual freedom, has it been beneficial for us? When you look at the data, when you look at where we are as a society... When we look at what's going on in our world, I mean, you tell me, has it been beneficial for us? Has it been beneficial for you? Because again, you have your own story. You had the talk and you've had your sexual experiences. Some of those you chose. And for some of you, there's situations and experiences you didn't choose. So let me ask you, has it been beneficial for you? Has it been beneficial for your family? Then Paul says this. He says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul brings up a very important point here. It, it's, it's a principle of Christianity. It's not a law. It's not a rule. It's not even a, a verse. It's a principle that Jesus set up. When Jesus came and said, I want to be not your friend, not your savior, but your king. The kingdom of God is what is coming near. And I am your king. I am the picture of God here on this earth. And I have come to be your king. And Paul says, let's not forget a very, very important principle of Christianity. Is that Christ is not our savior, not our forgiver. Not our friend. He is our king. We are to submit to him. Which means we are not to be ruled or mastered by anything. And Paul brings up a point that we know all too well in 2023. Is that sexual expression can be something that can become a master of you. Something that you submit to. Something that changes you. Something that, that makes you different. And Paul knew, knew it 2,000 years ago. And he says, look, I know we can do anything. And I, don't, I understand how you guys are, are kind of bending and, and, and twisting and, you know, using logic to get around this. But let's not, be, let's not forget, we are not to be mastered by anything. And what's interesting is when Freud said that sexual expression, sexual liberation would free us. What we've seen today is that it could actually master us. That it can become something we are addicted to. Something we're not able to let go of. Especially for men. Then Paul goes on and he goes, You say food for the stomach and stomach for food. 
But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord cares about your bodies. He's, he's, he's talking about food because he knows that when it comes to sex, there's a sexual appetite. And he goes, look, I know what you're saying. Food is food. Sex is sex, which is something common we even say today, right? Sex is sex. But you all know this. Food is not food. I was having a conversation just with somebody before church about ice cream, okay? I love ice cream. And I am trying my best. My wife is making fun of me a lot because I am a real, I'm a big ice cream bender, especially Ben and Jerry's, okay? And man, I'm trying to trick myself. I'm trying to make Greek yogurt into ice cream right now, okay? And my wife's like, you can't make sour cream into ice cream. It doesn't work. And I'm like, no, I'm going to trick myself, okay? But here's the thing. There's a big difference between Greek yogurt and Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia, okay? You can't say, well, food is food. Just fill yourself up. And that's what Paul's saying. No, food, not all food is the same. There's some good food that is good for you and some food that is bad for you. Some food that can get, make you hurt, right? So sex is not just sex. You can't just say sex is sex because he said, come on, you know that's not true. And then he talks about our bodies. Let me read that one more time. He goes, but, but when it comes to our bodies, you know that sexual, sexual uh, but our bodies were, were made for, not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord cares about your body. And I know, I know because I grew up in church and I get it. Okay. I'm 35. I'm not stupid. And I know that there's this idea, and it's partly an idea that the church has created. And the church has just really handled it wrong, which is why we have to talk about this. Because we've made sexual sin like this such a big deal. Like the whole LBGT conversation and all that stuff. It feels like the church has just like put a highlight on this and made it like such a big deal. And has been like so mean and so judgmental and so cruel and stuff. And you're like, like why is the church, like why do we spot, like highlight sexual sin so much. And I, and I think we've done it wrong. However, when we look at what Paul says, Paul explicitly says that God does care very, very much what we do with our body. So sin is sin. I'm not saying that. Okay. Sin is sin. Doesn't matter if you, you're an adulterer or you're a glutton. Okay. Sin is sin. But here's the thing. God does highlight sexual sin as something very important and something to pay attention to. But there's a reason. And the reason is this. He says this. So run from sexual immorality because no other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. And whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Here's the thing we need to understand, and this is the conversation the church should have had so many generations ago. It's not that sexual sin is a bigger deal to God than all the other sins. It's not like sexual sin is the sin that God is the most angry about. It doesn't bother God, okay? Sexual sin matters to God because no other sin affects you like sexual sin. And he cares about you. And he loves you. And he wants what's best for you. And he's saying like, look, in my eyes, sin is sin. Forgiveness is forgiveness. What I'm most concerned about is that I know there is no other sin that's created that can affect you more than sexual sin. And then he says, because here's the deal. When you sin sexually, he doesn't say God gets really, really angry. What does he say? When you sin sexually... 
you are sinning against yourself. He's saying, here's why it's a big deal. Nothing affects this like this. Nothing affects you like this does. And so it matters because I want what's best for you because I love you. And you know what was, was very interesting is if you looked at neuroscience today, neuroscience would agree with Paul. There's so, been so much testing and done in, in the field of neuroscience on sexuality and, and sexual acts and what it does. That they, they've discovered recently that they're the two different chemicals that are released in the brain when we have um, a sexual experience. Oxytocin and vasopressin. Oxytocin and vasopressin are released in the brain when we have a sexual experience. And what they've learned is that these two chemicals, when they're released, they are what causes an attachment to somebody. Right? A bond causes us to, 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 to draw close or to be close with somebody. So the attachment theory is involved here. And so when we have a sexual experience, these two chemicals are released and, and we have an attachment to somebody. But what they've discovered is that the more sexual experiences and more sexual partners that you have, the less and less your body uh, creates these two chemicals, oxytocin and vasopressin, which actually leads to an attachment disorder. And what they've seen is that since so many people are having so many partners by the time they get married and they've had, you know, on average 11 partners, that they're unable to bond and attach with the person they want to spend the rest of their life with. And they don't know how to create that bond and and, and trust with one another because they have attachment disorder. Because they've had too many sexual experiences. And that's not just in-person sexual experiences. They say even pornography is having an effect on those two chemicals that are being created in the brain. Psychologists have seen a huge decrease in this generation's ability to attach safely to someone. They're they're saying that attachment disorder is a really big concern for the next 10 to 30 years because of the amount of uh, divorces that we've seen in America and how common they are. And they said that the amount of divorces and the uh, amount of sexual depictions and the amount of violence and trauma that is just known and seen in the world, that it's actually changing the anatomy of the brain and that this generation is having a harder and harder time being social and attaching to other people. And we see it all the time, right? Like I I get together with young people all the time and and sometimes even our teenagers, they just want to be in the room together on their phones and there's like nothing actually social going on. But that's a lot of what the attachment disorder is going on. We don't, they don't know how to be social because they don't trust anybody because in their life, they've seen people walk out and they've seen people leave and they've seen people lie to them and they don't know what's true anymore. And they've just seen so much stuff happen that there's so much distrust there that it's, it's changing their brain. Uh, there's been studies uh, done on the effects of pornography. And they found that pornography and watching pornography, the same chemicals that are released in the brain while watching pornography is the same chemicals of that of cocaine. So if some of you are watching porn, you just go do cocaine. It's the same thing, all right? But it has the same effect on the brain. It can literally change the anatomy of the brain. And and the after effects are, are, are depression and anxiety and loneliness, acts of violence, so they're studying these different things. Neuroscience is looking at all of these different effects that sexual acts have and the, how the amount of sexual partners or sexual experiences you have are literally changing how you relate and attach to other people. And even neuroscientists, these aren't Christians, neuroscientists are saying, yes, there's a huge issue here because nothing affects the body like sex does. 
So when Paul says, here's why this matters to God, nothing affects you like sex does. Nothing affects the body like sex does. And when you misuse it, when you use it in the wrong context, there's an effect that it has on you. And forget how God feels about it. You're, You're not sinning against God. He says, you're sinning against yourself. You're hurting yourself. So, in the next verse, he says, so... Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is hilarious to me, okay? Because here's what this tells us. This tells us that the church in Corinth, they needed clarification. There were a lot of debates and arguments among them about what they should do. And so what they do? They wrote a letter to their pastor. Hey, pastor, you know, explain this to us. Can you give us some guidance on this? Like, what are we supposed to do? Because uh, my sister's sleeping with her brother and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, you know, causing some tension and stuff. And this is really weird. And so they, they get a letter back from Paul. And so somebody stood in front of the community like me, you know, and we're like, hey, got a letter from Paul. Uh, I'm going to uh, read some, some answers he wrote. And he said, uh, in regards into question number five, uh, it would be better if just you guys didn't have sexual relations with one another. And I would imagine if that were us, somebody in the crowd, I mean, Brad Lindsay would be like, come on, who wrote that question? That was not something we wanted to know about. Now we can't have sex. Thanks, Derek. You ruined it for all of us, right? But then the guy goes, but, 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 and they go, oh, thank God. All right, there's a but. All right, what is it, Pastor? What did he say? All right, he goes, but, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And now the whole crowd went, okay, good. So we can have sex. There's just a context. There's just guardrails. There's just a box that it fits in. And Paul goes, look, there's a context. There's a safe place for this. There's a guardrail that you should have. And this is Paul. This is not me. Paul says that sexual experiences fit in a highly committed, monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. That's where it fits. He goes, look, it would just be better if you didn't. Because even if you're married, we all know that even if you're married, you still need sexual integrity. You can still mess that up. Just because you're married doesn't mean you can go gangbusters and do whatever you want. But he goes, look... It matters. And the box that this fits in is a man and a woman in a highly committed, monogamous relationship. Committed to one another. This is where sex belongs. And in this series, we're going to talk about intimacy. Because we all know sex can just be sex. But you can't change the effects of sex. But what we all are really looking for is intimacy. And so... Part of this series is how to have better intimacy as well. And I think that that's important to talk about. I think that that's biblical. I think that that's what Jesus would want for us. I mean, Jesus wants all of us to have good intimacy. And what Paul is trying to tell us in in just this letter that he writes is that intimacy requires exclusivity. Intimacy requires exclusivity. I mean, when he talks about this monogamous relationship of just his husband and his wife... He's talking about they need to be exclusive to one another. Because we all know this. Accessibility minus exclusivity erodes intimacy. Exclusiveness is such an important part of an intimate relationship. So the question we're all left with when we get something like this thrown in our lap is, so where's the line, right? 
We've been asking that question since we hit puberty. So where's the line? Remember how you used to use the bases? I don't know if that's still a thing, but remember first base, second base, and everybody had a different idea about what third base was, right? You talk to your, talk to your friend about, well, third base is this. No, not in my family. Okay. Well, you got a weird amount of bases, right? But, but where's the line? That's what we all want to know, right? So where's the line pastor? What does that look like? And what Paul would say, and look, this is a lot of what I'm going to say in this series, because I'm not going to give you any how to's in this series. Trust me. You don't want me to. Okay. But if we ask Paul, so He would say, so sex belongs between a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. But beyond that, well, your adults figure it out. That's what Paul would say. Your adults figure it out. You are led by the spirit and nobody knows you better than you. So the question that we all have to go home and talk about and the thing we have to conversation we have to have with God is what does exclusivity look like for you? Can you go that? Yeah. What does exclusivity look like for you? What's it look like for you? That's something you need to decide. That's something that you need to decide for yourself. Kate and I have had a lot of conversations about what that looks like in our relationship. Uh, one thing that I do that my, my wife didn't even know I did this. And then I, I sent her the first draft of this sermon. And I said, hey, tell me what you think about this. She didn't even know I did this. But, you know, I, I, I love social media. I think social media is a fantastic tool. But I, I'll be scrolling on social media, you know, on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And, and every once in a while, sometimes it's somebody I don't know. Unfortunately, sometimes it's somebody I do know, you know, there's always that picture of, you know, somebody, you know, wearing something and they're like, oh, just join my coffee on a rainy day. Just nothing to see here, but also hee hee, right? And I'm like, oh, look, there's, there's the boobies. Uh, you know, I'm like, oh, there's something. Okay. Oh, wow. Look at that picture. Right. And I mean, it's, it's, it's out there and it's obvious. And I mean, come on, we, we take pictures like that. We, we know what we're doing. Right. But here's the thing. If I ever see a picture like that, even if it's just a picture of a woman just by herself, I never, ever, ever like, or give a heart to any picture of a woman by herself. And here's the reason why I do that. It's because I never, I never want my wife to be scrolling on her social media or her Instagram. And you know when you see that your friend liked or gave a heart to something? I never want my wife to see, especially somebody we know, come across their picture and it goes, Michael gave that a heart. Michael gave that a like. And I don't know if my wife is insecure and would do this or not, but I don't want my wife to look at that and go, oh, so that's what he likes. Because she's skinnier than me, or she's curvier than me, or her, 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 her hair color is different than me. I don't want my wife to see that and, and, and second guess herself and feel insecure and go, well, that's, oh, so that's what he's into. So that's what turns him on. So I just don't do that. Instead, my wife gets all my likes and all my hearts. Put that on your Instagram. That's what I choose to do. That's how I stay exclusive to my wife to create intimacy in our relationship. My wife gets all my hearts and all my likes. Now, we've also had another conversation recently. Uh, there's a popular pastor by the name of Matt Chandler. Uh, Matt Chandler got into some hot water. He's got a really big church. And um, he, they, they had friends. Him and his wife had friends. And he was DMing a girl uh, that they were friends with from their church. And somebody in the church found out about it. And he's like, 
That pastor's DMing another girl. Now, there was nothing sexually explicit in it. There was nothing bad. They have all been friends for years. His wife knew about it and stuff. Nothing bad. But somebody was just like, well, I don't think our male pastor should be DMing another girl from the church. I don't care how close they are or if they're friends or whatever. And I was like, oh, shoot. I text girls and DM girls from our church like all the time uh, because I'm sometimes we're interested in the same thing or I see something and I'm like, well, shoot, maybe I shouldn't do that. So I go to Kate and I'm like, hey, Kate, like there's this, there was a situation with Matt Chandler and like he's taking a little leave of absence. And I've never thought this was inappropriate because I, I don't say anything inappropriate or do anything inappropriate, but I, I want to safeguard this. So I asked her, I'm like, you know, would you like to be included in all of our text messages and, and DMs that I have with anybody. I mean, should we be those people that have a joint Facebook account where it's Michael and Kate Davis, you know, dot com or something, or like, what, sh- what should we do? You know, because I mean, I'm literally, I'm literally in a text chat with several women that are in this room and it's the love is blind text group. And we talk about love is blind, you know, which by the way, I said that Wednesday night in Wright city. And I had like four people come up to me and go, you didn't tell me we had a church love is blind text group pastor. I'd like to be added to that. We had a finale party at pastor's house. It was great. We had gold chalices and everything. Anyway, I'll invite you next year, but I'm looking at my wife going like, is this bad? And my wife looks at me and goes, Oh my gosh, please don't add me to any of your text messages. I said, why? She goes, because I actually work for a living and I'm too busy to be sitting there at the bank in my meetings and ding, 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 you and Kristen sending each other another love is blind TikTok. Please don't include me in any of that. Okay. All right. Fine. So my wife has said like, that's, that's no, we've talked about that. And again, like you might look at that and like, I don't think that's appropriate. Well, me and my wife have talked about it and me and my wife have decided it's fine. So we've talked about this. Now, another thing we do, you'll never, ever, ever, if you ever try to pull us into a fireside chat about our sex life or anything like that, me and my wife, that's one of the things we will never talk to anyone about. Anyone ever. We don't ever chat about what goes on in our bedroom or in our kitchen or in any way. We don't talk about that. I'm just seeing if you're still awake. We don't talk about that because that's exclusive to us. We don't share those experiences with anybody else. Here's the thing. You have to decide what exclusivity looks like in your marriage, in your relationship. Now, single people, this is not just a married conversation. This is a conversation for you too. Because even as you may not be married yet, you have to choose to be exclusive for who you are going to be with. And you may not know who that is. And don't ever assume that you think it's all figured out or that it's all locked in. And well, I just haven't given them a ring or I just haven't asked the question or I just ha- we just haven't gotten married yet, but we plan to. Look, you can't ever say that because you never know. And I've got story after story about how sometimes that's not true. But even you as single or divorced or widowed, you have to choose what exclusivity looks like to you because you are still a sexual being. And you are still having sexual thoughts and sexual feelings and sexual experiences, even though you may not be married. And you need to choose what exclusivity looks like to you. 
And especially, look, young people. We have a ton of young people. I love that our young adult group is, is growing. And we have teenagers in here. And we have 20-somethings in here. And let me tell you what so many people in this room will not tell you. Is that you need to be cautious of this. And you need to understand the gravity that this has. Not because it's a huge sin to God. But because it can be a huge sin against yourself. Because the truth is, is that sexual experiences imprint on us. This isn't biblical. This is neuroscience. Sexual experiences imprint on us. Let me tell you a story that I've never told. Somebody one day ended up in my office and they said, pastor, I've got a huge problem. Said, I am married. I love my wife. She has given me two beautiful children. She works hard. She is fantastic. But the best sex I ever had was in my 20s in college. And I've never had the same sexual experience as I had with this girl. And I have never been able to get her out of my mind. And we've been married for X amount of years. But I've never, the best sex I ever had with this girl. And she hit me up on Facebook and she wants to see me. And I just don't know what to do. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love the family I have. I've never been able to forget about that woman. And I don't know. Did I make the wrong decision? Did I end up with the wrong girl? Oh, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking at this guy. What am I supposed to tell that guy? What in the world am I supposed to say to him? That this man who has a beautiful family and beautiful children can't even enjoy the sex that he gets to have with his wife. Because he can't forget about this one girl he dated for three months in college. What am I supposed to tell him? He's screwed. Right? Because he can't, he can't escape that. What am I supposed to do? What in the world am I supposed to do? The only thing he can do now is to be disciplined. Or to pray that somehow God would take away this urge. But he definitely can't go after this relationship. He has to be committed to the marriage that he's in. But now... That guy was struggling with that. That's the kind of situation you could put yourself in. Guys, it is way beyond getting pregnant or any of that stuff. It is about the social and psychological impact that it has on you. Parents, let me ask you another question. What does exclusivity look like for your kids? Because you're responsible for that. And look... Please, don't get me started. Don't, if you tell me, well, they're a teenager, well, they're a young adult, what are you going to do? Dude, if you pay their insurance and they live under your roof and you pay their cell phone and you're still putting food on the table for them, there is plenty you can do. Okay? You're still their parent. And again, young people, I'm not, I'm not trying to be the, the old man here, okay? But look. That frontal lobe of your brain is not fully developed till 25. And the worst place to be is to be young and poor because sex is cheap. All right? So I, I get it. You're young and you've got these urges and it's, 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 it's something to do and it's free and it can feel good and stuff. But here's the thing. Parents, you've got to choose what exclusivity looks like for your kids. And you have to have an influence with them. You have to have more than just an educational talk about safe sex with your kids and with our young people. 
For, for me, when I was a teenager, there were two rules. Number one, you don't ever take a girl in your bedroom. I don't care if the door's open. There ain't nothing to do in your bedroom except for to sleep, and that's it. So you're never taking a girl in your bedroom. And if you, you, know, if you ever go downstairs in the basement to watch a movie, because my parents knew what I was doing, right? That, that door better be cracked. That door better be open. And you're never going to anybody's house when there's not a parent there. My parents gave me guardrails. And you know what? I'm thankful for that. When I was a teenager, I rolled my eyes at it. I thought it was stupid. Oh, you're so lame. But man, it kept me exclusive from my wife. And that's what's important because now there's stuff that I don't have to unpack and consequences I don't have to deal with because my parents cared enough and loved me enough to give me guardrails and to tell me how I needed to stay exclusive. You got to decide that. And man, millennials... You've got a bigger challenge than our parents had because with all these apps and stuff, I mean, it's nuts. And again, what you choose to do, I mean, my daughter's eight years old. I got her a cell phone. I'm okay with that. You might think that's crazy, but we have to, we have to draw boxes. We have to give them guardrails because there's stuff out there. One of the teens talked to me into getting Snapchat because I'm feeling old and I want to be cool. So anyway, I asked the kids, like, what do I do? I got a Snapchat. Within 24 hours, not from anyone we know or anyone here, I was sent a nude Snapchat, whatever. I was sent nudity, okay? I was sent nudity through that app of somebody topless going, hey, want to talk? You know, I mean, I was like, okay, all right. That's Snapchat. And so many other adults I've talked to, have you seen content like this? They're like, yeah, that's Snapchat. That can happen. It's out there. So you need to have that conversation. You need to choose what exclusivity looks like for your kids. Now, look, this whole conversation, right, stirs that pot. And look, we're a church for people who don't like church. So I know that in this room, there's a lot of us. We weren't virgins when we, when we got married, right? A lot of us cohabitated. A lot of us fit these statistics. You may have a story of your past. You may be in a story right now. I'm not stupid, okay? But here's the thing. Here's, here's what I want you to hear. Because this, this could stir some things up. It, it might make you feel bad. But, but here's the thing I want you to hear as your pastor who loves you and cares for you. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I'm a bad person. And, and here's what I want you to take away. I do not want you to feel any shame. There is no one in this room that is a bad person. For what you've experienced, for how you did it, whatever it may be, there is nobody in this room that is a bad person. However, all of us fall short of the glory of God. Me included. Me included. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of sexual sin. And when we feel that, when we feel guilt of doing something bad, that's the voice of God calling us to repent. But nobody in here should feel shame. And some of you, some of you, what you've experienced, you shouldn't even feel guilt for because it wasn't your choice and it was put on you. And that was wrong. And I've heard stories of our young people talk about that. And I don't ever want you to come in here and think, well, pastor made me feel bad when somebody did something to me. If somebody did something to you and you wasn't your choice, you shouldn't even feel guilty for that because that's not your fault. But the thing we all need to remember is for those of us who have chosen to follow Christ, Paul said in Romans, he said this, he says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there is no one here today that should feel any amount of condemnation. But I have to talk about this 
even though it's touchy, even though it's sensitive, I have to talk, talk about it because the world for a hundred years has promised us that sexual liberation and sexual freedom and being your true self would lead to ultimate happiness. And what I think we've discovered most today is that is a lie. And so the only thing we can do is turn to the truth. And Jesus said this, John wrote it down. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is not meant to make you feel bad. This is meant to help you become your best self. This is for you because there is no other sin that hurts you and sin against you like sexual sin. And what I want you to know is the truth. What I want you and what Jesus wants you to have is a life. A life that's good. A life that's fulfilling. A life that's purposeful. A life with the least amount of baggage and broken hearts that they possibly can be. So what we all have to do is to take this and not feel shame, but take this and ask God, God, is there anything in me that I need to change? What does exclusivity look like in my life? What does exclusivity look like in my marriage? What does exclusivity look like for my kids? And what can I do? What guardrails can I set up to protect myself? Because I love myself enough that I deserve the best. And that's what God wants for me. So what would that be? This is not about taking away any happiness from you. This is about fulfilling your life and giving you real truth giving you real joy, and giving you real fulfillment. So as we pray today, I think you ought to have that conversation with God. What does that look like for you today? Will you bow your heads with me? Father God, Father God, as we in service today, God, you've brought up this huge, huge topic today, this huge, huge subject. God, this conversation can stir up all kinds of things. It makes us recall our story. It re- makes us recall our past. It makes us think of our kids. It makes us think of our marriage. It makes us think of our past relationships. God, today, would you do a work in us? Only you know what that, know, know what that looks like. Only you know what that exclusive, exclusivity looks like. God, would you guide us in the right direction today? Would you humble us and give us wisdom and give us strength and help us make the decisions that we need to make? Would you do something new in us? Because God, if there's anything that's become abundantly clear today, it's that you love us and you care about us and you want what's best for us. Which means there are certain things I have to do to protect myself, to protect my body. If I truly love myself, if I truly want what's best for myself, there are certain things I have to do. So God, would you help us to love ourselves enough to do what's necessary? To give this over to you and to follow you because the world has lied to us, but the truth is out there. So will you help us to discover what that truth is for ourselves? God, we love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. As the band comes to lead us in worship uh, this morning, uh, as we do just a couple more songs, um, this this series, it's not going to be as heavy as this, 
But I do think it's so, so important. And so I hope that you engage with this over the next two weeks as we just talk about this subject. Um, and, and ask questions. And have conversations. And this is a safe place to have those conversations. This is a safe place to ask those questions. And so I hope that you do. Will you stand as we worship this morning one more time?